Section 34 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1B, Section 34, Chapter 17, Part 2. But it was so material an interest of the French court to wrest the seaport towns from the hands of their enemy, that they resolved to attempt it by some other expedient, and found no means so likely as an invasion of England itself. They collected a great fleet and army at Suisse, for the Flemings were now in alliance with them. All the nobility of France were engaged in this enterprise, the English were kept in alarm, great preparations were made for the reception of the invaders. And though the dispersion of the French ships by a storm, and the taking of many of them by the English before the embarkation of the troops freed the kingdom from the present danger, the king and council were fully sensible that this perilous situation might every moment return upon them. There were two circumstances, chiefly, which engaged the French at this time to think of such attempts. The one was the absence of the Duke of Lancaster, who had carried into Spain the flower of the English military force, in prosecution of his vain claim to the throne of Castile, an enterprise in which, after some promising success, he was finally disappointed. The other was the violent dissensions and disorders which had taken place in the English government. The subjection in which Richard was held by his uncles, particularly by the Duke of Gloucester, a prince of ambition and genius, though it was not unsuitable to his years and slender capacity, was extremely disagreeable to his violent temper, and he soon attempted to shake off the yoke imposed upon him. Robert de Vere, Earl of Oxford, a young man of a noble family, of an agreeable figure, but of dissolute manners, had acquired an entire ascendant over him, and governed him with absolute authority. The king set so little bounds to his affection that he first created his favorite Marquis of Dublin, a title before unknown in England, then Duke of Ireland, and transferred to him by patent, which was confirmed in Parliament, the entire sovereignty for life of that island. The jealousy of power immediately produced an animosity between the minion and his creatures on the one hand, and the princes of blood and chief nobility on the other and the usual complaints against the insolence of favorites were loudly echoed and greedily received in every part of the kingdom. Moubray, Earl of Nottingham, the Marshal, Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel, Piercy, Earl of Northumberland, Montacute, Earl of Salisbury, Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick, were all connected with each other and with the princes by friendship or alliance and still more by their common antipathy to those who had eclipsed them in the king's favor and confidence. No longer kept in awe by the personal character of the prince, they scorned to submit to his ministers, and the method which they took to redress the grievance complained of well suited the violence of the age, and proves the desperate extremities to which every opposition was sure to be instantly carried. Michael de la Pole, the present chancellor and lately created Earl of Suffolk, was the son of an eminent merchant, but had risen by his abilities and valor during the wars of Edward III, had acquired the friendship of that monarch, 
and was esteemed the person of greatest experience and capacity among those who were attached to the Duke of Ireland and the King's secret council. The Duke of Gloucester, who had the House of Commons at his devotion, impelled them to exercise that power which they seemed first to have assumed against Lord Latimer during the declining years of the late King, and an impeachment against the Chancellor was carried up by them to the House of Peers, which was no less at his devotion. The King foresaw the tempest preparing against him and his ministers. After attempting in vain to rouse the Londoners to his defense, he withdrew from Parliament and retired with his court to Eltham. The Parliament sent a deputation, inviting him to return, and threatening that, if he persisted in absenting himself, they would immediately dissolve and leave the nation, though at that time in imminent danger of a French invasion, without any support or supply for its defense. At the same time, a member was encouraged to call for the record containing the parliamentary deposition of Edward II, a plain intimation of the fate which Richard, if he continued refractory, had reason to expect from them. The king, finding himself unable to resist, was content to stipulate that, except finishing the present impeachment against Suffolk, no attack should be made upon any other of his ministers, and on that condition he returned to the Parliament. Nothing can prove more fully the innocence of Suffolk than the frivolousness of the crimes which his enemies, in the present plentitude of their power, thought proper to object against him. It was alleged that being Chancellor, and obliged by his oath to consult the King's profit, he had purchased lands of the crown below their true value, that he had exchanged with the King a perpetual annuity of four hundred marks a year, which he inherited from his father, and which was assigned upon the customs of the Port of Hull, for lands of equal income. That having obtained for his son the priory of St. Anthony, which was formerly possessed by a Frenchman, an enemy, and a schismatic, and a new prior being at the same time named by the Pope, he had refused to admit this person, whose title was not legal till he made a composition with his son, and agreed to pay him a hundred pounds a year from the income of the benefice. That he had purchased, from one Tideman of Limborg, an old and forfeited annuity of fifty pounds a year upon the crown, and had engaged the king to admit that bad debt. And that, when created Earl of Suffolk, he had obtained a grant of five hundred pounds a year to support the dignity of that title. We may even the proof of these articles, frivolous as they are, was found very deficient upon the trial. It appeared that Suffolk had made no purchase from the crown while he was chancellor, and that all his bargains of that kind were made before he was advanced to that dignity. It is almost needless to add that he was condemned, notwithstanding his defense, and that he was deprived of his office. Gloucester and his associates observed their stipulation with the king, and attacked no more of his ministers, but they immediately attacked himself and his royal dignity, and framed a commission after the model of those which had been attempted almost in every reign since that of Richard I, and which had always been attended with extreme confusion. By this commission, which was ratified by Parliament, a council of fourteen persons was appointed, all of Gloucester's faction, except Neville, Archbishop of York. The sovereign power was transferred to these men for a twelvemonth. The king, who had now reached the twenty-first year of his age, was in reality dethroned. The aristocracy was rendered supreme, and though the term of the commission was limited, it was easy to foresee that the intentions of the party were to render it perpetual, 
and that power would with great difficulty be wrested from those grasping hands to which it was once committed. Richard, however, was obliged to submit. He signed the commission which violence had extorted from him, he took an oath never to infringe it, and though at the end of the session he publicly entered a protest that the prerogatives of the crown, notwithstanding his late concession, should still be deemed entire and unimpaired, the new commissioners, without regarding this declaration, proceeded to the exercise of their authority. The king, thus dispossessed of royal power, was soon sensible of the contempt into which he was fallen. His favorites and ministers, who were as yet allowed to remain about his person, failed not to aggravate the injury which without any demerit on his part had been offered to him. And his eager temper was of itself sufficiently inclined to remark that the Dukes of Gloucester and York, though vastly rich, received at the same time each of them a thousand pounds a year top support their dignity, and to seek the means both of recovering his authority and of revenging himself on those who had invaded it. As the House of Commons appeared now of weight in the Constitution, he secretly tried some expedients for procuring a favorable election. He sounded some of the sheriffs, who, being at that time both the returning officers and the magistrates of great power in the counties, had naturally considerable influence in the elections. But as most of them had been appointed by his uncles, either during his minority or during the course of the present commission, he found them in general averse to his enterprise. The sentiments and inclinations of the judges were more favorable to him. He met at Nottingham Sir Robert Tresillian, Chief Justice of the King's Bench, Sir Robert Belknap, Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, Sir John Gary, Chief Baron of the Exchequer, Holt, Fulthorpe, and Borg, Inferior Justices, and Lockton, Surgeon at Law. And he proposed to them some queries which these lawyers, either from the influence of his authority or of reason, made no scruple of answering in the way he desired. They declared that the late commission was derogatory to the royalty and prerogative of the king, that those who procured it or advised the king to consent to it were punishable with death, that those who necessitated and compelled him were guilty of treason, that those were equally criminal who should persevere in maintaining it, that the king has the right of dissolving parliaments at pleasure, that the Parliament, while it sits, must first proceed upon the King's business, and that this Assembly cannot, without his consent, impeach any of his ministers and judges. Even according to our present strict maxims with regard to the law and the royal prerogative, all these determinations, except the last two, appear justifiable. And as the great privileges of the Commons, particularly that of impeachment, were hitherto new and supported by few precedents, there want not plausible reasons to justify these opinions of the judges. They obliged the king to summon a parliament, which was entirely at their devotion. They had full power, by observing a few legal forms, to take vengeance on all their enemies. Five great peers, men whose combined power was able at any time to shake the throne, the Duke of Gloucester, the king's uncle, the Earl of Derby, son of the Duke of Lancaster, the Earl of Arundel, the Earl of Warwick, and the Earl of Nottingham, Marshal of England, entered before the Parliament an accusation or appeal, as it was called, against the five councillors whom they had already accused before the King. The Parliament, who ought to have been judges, were not ashamed to impose an oath on all their members, by which they bound themselves to live and die with the Lord's appellants, and to defend them against all opposition with their lives and fortunes. 
the duke of gloucester and his adherents soon got intelligence of this secret consultation and were naturally very much alarmed at it they saw the king's intentions and they determined to prevent the execution of them as soon as he came to london which they knew was well disposed to their party they secretly assembled their forces and appeared in arms at Haringey park near highgate with a power which richard and his ministers were not able to resist they sent him a message by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lords Lovell Cobham and Devereux, and demanded that the persons who had seduced him by their pernicious counsel, and were traitors both to him and to the kingdom, should be delivered up to them. A few days after, they appeared in his presence, armed and attended with armed followers, and they accused by name the Archbishop of York, the Duke of Ireland, the Earl of Suffolk, Sir Robert Tresillian, and Sir Nicholas Brembray as public and dangerous enemies to the state. They threw down their gauntlets before the king, and fiercely offered to maintain the truth of their charge by duel. The persons accused, and all the other obnoxious ministers, had withdrawn or had concealed themselves. The Duke of Ireland fled to Cheshire, and levied some forces, with which he advanced to relieve the king from the violence of the nobles. Gloucester encountered him in Oxfordshire with much superior forces, routed him dispersed his followers and obliged him to fly into the low countries where he died in exile a few years after the other proceedings were well suited to the violence and iniquity of the times a charge consisting of thirty-nine articles was delivered in by the appellants and as none of the accused counsellors except sir nicholas brembray was in custody the rest were cited to appear and upon their absenting themselves, the House of Peers, after a very short interval, without hearing a witness, without examining a fact, or deliberating on one point of law, declared them guilty of high treason. Sir Nicholas Brembray, who was produced in court, had the appearance, and but the appearance, of a trial. The Peers, though they were not by law his proper judges, pronounced in a very summary manner sentence of death upon him and he was executed together with Sir Robert Tresillian, who had been discovered and taken in the interval. It would be tedious to recite the whole charge delivered against the five councillors, which is to be met with in several collections. It is sufficient to observe in general, that if we reason upon the supposition, which is the true one, that the royal prerogative was invaded by the commission exhorted by the Duke of Gloucester and his associates, and that the king's person was afterwards detained in custody by rebels. Many of the articles will appear not only to imply no crime in the Duke of Ireland and the ministers, but to ascribe to them actions which were laudable, and which they were bound by their allegiance to perform. The few articles impeaching the conduct of these ministers before that commission, which subverted the Constitution and annihilated all justice and legal authority, are vague and general, such as their engrossing the king's favor, keeping his barons at a distance from him, obtaining unreasonable grants for themselves or their creatures, and dissipating the public treasure by useless expenses. No violence is objected to them, no particular illegal act, no breach of any statute, and their administration may therefore be concluded to have been so far innocent and inoffensive. All the disorders indeed seem to have proceeded not from any violation of the laws, or any ministerial tyranny, but merely from a rivalship of power which the Duke of Gloucester and the great nobility, agreeably to the genius of the times, carried to the utmost extremity against their opponents, without any regard to reason, justice, or humanity. 
But these were not the only deeds of violence committed during the triumph of the party. All the other judges who had signed the extrajudicial opinions at Nottingham were condemned to death, and were, as a grace of favor, banished to Ireland, though they pleaded the fear of their lives and the menaces of the king's ministers as their excuse. Lord Beauchamp of Holt, Sir James Berners, and John Salisbury were also tried and condemned for high treason, merely because they had attempted to defeat the late commission, but the life of the latter was spared. The fate of Sir Simon Burley was more severe. This gentleman was much beloved for his personal merit, had distinguished himself by many honorable actions, was created Knight of the Garter, and had been appointed Governor to Richard by the choice of the late King and of the Black Prince. He had attended his master from the earliest infancy of that prince, and had ever remained extremely attached to him. Yet all these considerations could not save him from falling a victim to Gloucester's vengeance. This execution, more than all the others, made a deep impression on the mind of Richard, his queen too, for he was already married to the sister of the Emperor Wenceslaus, King of Bohemia, interested herself in behalf of Burley. She remained three hours on her knees before the Duke of Gloucester, pleading for that gentleman's life. But though she was become extremely popular by her amiable qualities, which had acquired her the appellation of the Good Queen Anne, her petition was sternly rejected by the inexorable tyrant. The Parliament concluded this violent scene by a declaration that none of the articles decided on these trials to be treason should ever afterwards be drawn into precedent by the judges, who were still to consider the statute of the 25th of Edward as the rule of their decisions. The House of Lords seem not at that time to have known or acknowledged the principle that they themselves were bound, in their judicial capacity, to follow the rules which they, in conjunction with the King and Commons, had established in their legislature. It was also enacted that everyone should swear to the perpetual maintenance and support of the forfeitures and attainders, and of all the other acts passed during this Parliament. The Archbishop of Canterbury added the penalty of excommunication as a further security to these violent transactions. It might naturally be expected that the king, being reduced to such slavery by the combination of the princes and chief nobility, and having appeared so unable to defend his servants from the cruel effects of their resentment, would long remain in subjection to them, and never would recover the royal power without the most violent struggles and convulsions. But the event proved contrary. In less than a twelve-month, Richard, who was in his twenty-third year, declared in council that as he had now attained the full age which entitled him to govern by his own authority his kingdom and his household, he resolved to exercise his right of sovereignty, and when no one ventured to contradict so reasonable an intention, he deprived Fitzalan, Archbishop of Canterbury, of the dignity of Chancellor, and bestowed that high office on William of Wickham, Bishop of Winchester. The Bishop of Hereford was displaced from the office of Treasurer, the Earl of Arundel from that of Admiral, even the Duke of Gloucester and the Earl of Warwick were removed for a time from the Council and no opposition was made to these great changes. The history of this reign is imperfect and little to be depended on, except where it is supported by public records, and it is not easy for us to assign the reason of this unexpected event. Perhaps some secret animosities, naturally to be expected in that situation, had crept in among the great men and had enabled the king to recover his authority. 
Perhaps the violence of their former proceedings had lost them the affections of the people, who soon repent of any cruel extremities to which they are carried by their leaders. However this may be, Richard exercised with moderation the authority which he had resumed. He seemed to be entirely reconciled to his uncles and the other great men, of whom he had so much reason to complain. He never attempted to recall from banishment the Duke of Ireland, whom he found so obnoxious to them. He confirmed by proclamation the general pardon which the Parliament had passed for all offences, and he courted the affections of the people by voluntarily remitting some subsidies which had been granted him, a remarkable and almost singular instance of such generosity. End of Section 34, Chapter 17, Part 2 Recording by Emily, Boston, Massachusetts